Morrison and Gladys's rolling COVID disaster, corporates use the pandemic to try and cut job security, and the good news is about wireless electric car charging. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison, and joining me, as is now far too often the case from lockdown Sydney, rather than here with me and Germanicus in our cold Victorian shed, is the great, the magnificent, the exposer of QAnon conspiracies, Van Batham. How are you, Van? Well, as you know, Ben, I'm having quite the time. And a big thank you to the SES uh, for coming out to deal with the collapsing rain-sodden roof problem last night. Just the cherry on top of my situation at the moment. Yes, indeed. People in New South Wales have been drenched, as has much of Victoria as well. And, yeah, you sprung a leak last night. Yeah, it was more than a leak, more like a running tap, which is something nobody wants to occur in the ceiling of the lounge room. But we are where we are, and fortunately, uh, the SES were onto it really quickly. That was so incredibly nice, and it just makes you so grateful to to live in a country that has some kind of, you know, functioning services, frankly. Oh, what a time. Invisible killer virus, separated from my partner, my mother is unwell, and, you know, water pouring from the ceiling. Could it get any more fun than this? God, I dare you. What have you got left? (laughs) Throw it at me. Well, that's risking fate, but anyway, (laughs) hopefully that doesn't come back to bite us both. Um, Van, we we need to talk about uh, COVID quite extensively today. I think the you know, oh, just for a change. We, well, just we've for a change, about a bit of a chat about the invisible killer virus. No problem. Yeah, we've talked about it a lot over the course of the week on Wednesday. Uh, but I think the debate in Australia is taking a strange turn. And of course, today, uh, being Wednesday the twenty fifth of August, we've seen New South Wales record a record number of COVID cases, an Australian record, 919 uh, predictions are. Gold standard. Gold standard performance from New South Wales. Well done. You've turned it into a competition, 919. Don't you ever, 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 ever criticise the Andrews Labor Government of Victoria ever again. Don't ever do it. If anybody even tries that with me. Yeah. The predictions are, let me finish, let me finish. I know, I'm angry about it too, but let me finish because the predictions are that cases will climb past 1,000, possibly past 1,200. We've seen today both Blacktown and Westmead hospitals stop taking cases. They've essentially declared an internal emergency and they're unable to continue to take cases. You know, Gladys still banging on about vaccination rate being the most important number. Well, on that, on that, the number of fully vaccinated Australians stands at about 30%. And, of course, the Morrison government is seemingly fighting a bit of a war to suggest that once we get to 70% of people having one jab or 80% of people having one jab, uh, all these lockdowns will end, hospitalizations will end. Uh, and it's it's somewhat ironic that they're fighting that war on the same day two New South Wales hospitals close to COVID patients. And uh, 
and it comes the day after, Gladys says that they've gone past 6 million vaccinations in New South Wales, so that's a milestone. So there's going to be some kind of prize for all the good little boys and girls and non-gender uh, identifying individuals uh, in New South Wales come Friday. And what what yes, are you looking forward to? We're all going to get a pat. Oh, thank you, Auntie Gladys. Thank you so much. Let's just be very clear about what this represents. I'm in New South Wales and unfortunately to the detriment of my own stress levels and blood pressure, I try and watch the briefings every day Like, and I try. I really, really try. And the rhetoric for weeks has been that this is sort of all our fault because we're not all vaccinated. So despite the fact that the vax wasn't supplied by the federal government and despite the fact that all of these systems failed because Scott Morrison doesn't hold a hose, mate, doesn't hold a hose, mate, doesn't administer a dose, mate, likes to have a dose, mate, you know, it's a bit on the nose, mate, frankly. Um, That's it was all nice somehow everybody, everybody else's fault that we weren't vaccinated and that's why this was spreading through the community. Now the poor old Berejiklian government, poor, poor Berejiklian government has the propaganda problem that people do really want to get vaccinated. People are pursuing vaccination in record numbers. Like the the vac- people seeking vaccinations is through the roof. Everybody wants to be vaccinated. Everybody wants this virus over and now that the doses have turned up people are taking them you know and and I just want to put this in perspective with people who see the images of the absolutely inane like propaganda agents of the the anti-vax community only two percent of Australians actually hold anti-vax beliefs two percent and, you know, this kind of distorted idea that, you know, there's this mass anti-lockdown protest and people opposed to vaccination, it is distorted because nobody else can leave the house. And if we weren't dealing with an invisible killer virus that spreads through the community at incredible rates, if those people were marching in my town, I would be out counter-protesting and I think so would the overwhelming majority of Australians. Like, let's just get all of this into perspective. The problem that the Berejiklian government has is now that everybody's getting vaccinated, the virus hasn't gone away. Their management of it hasn't improved and infections are now through the ceiling. There are more than 900 in New South Wales. This is a new national record. Um, There are more than 600 people who are currently in hospital. There are more than 100 people who are in intensive care. And you can't blame the situation on vaccine hesitancy anymore. You can't do that. You have to blame the situation on the total systems failure that has gripped New South Wales for months. Well, I mean, just on that, Van, you know, Victoria opened up uh, Pfizer for uh, for younger age groups today, uh, and we saw that uh, it crashed the system, a system which has been pretty heavily tested over the last 18 months, you have to say, um, but such as people's willingness to get vaccinated that, you know, they're crashing websites, people are standing in line for hours and hours to get to uh, to get tested, to get vaccinated. It, it really... Uh, it really makes you wonder how Gladys and Morrison can stand up with a straight face and somehow suggest that it's everybody else's fault but theirs. You know, interesting, interesting on this, 
I think, is this this reopening idea. And I just got a news alert that uh, the CEO of NAB has suggested that November 2nd, Melbourne Cup Day, perhaps not coincidentally, should be somehow another Freedom Day, on the same day that the uh, the head of the AMA, the Australian Medical Association, probably slightly better placed to comment on what is and isn't appropriate health regulations, has suggested that opening up at 70 or 80% of eligible adults, which is the Berejiklian and Morrison target, borders on child abuse because they won't be they won't be uh, vaccinated and and therefore that's really only 55% of the population have we completely devolved into political spin on something that is fundamentally a health issue yes clearly we have and clearly we're just pretending the children don't exist in these numbers i mean you and i have a friend who was tweeting today about their kids been in Westmead Hospital and their unwell child had to get a coronavirus test because Westmead is one of the places riddled with, you know, coronavirus infections. And, I mean, it's just you and I have a conception of the fundamental responsibility of government. The reason why government exists is that there is a shared social system to keep children alive. That's basically what we're in the game for. The governments exist to create a society in which people will be fed and sheltered and be able to travel and to minimise the risk of unnecessary death to the vulnerable, i.e. children, so humanity can continue and survive. And sometimes I feel that this belief marks us as quite marginal outsiders <laughs> when I listen to Scott Morrison say things like, well, we've just got to get on with it, like we can't keep our economy locked down forever. And I tweeted this earlier today, like the distillation of the modern Liberal Party's philosophy of government is it's literally more important to them that Harvey Norman stays open than your children are kept alive. This well, is where we're at. So this prevailing mythology that somehow children have this magical immunity to coronavirus, this is has been blown out of the water all over the world. In the United States, where the pan, it's now the pandemic of the unvaccinated, where this insane, like literally insane conspiracy theory that the vaccines are full of 5G microchips that alter your DNA and turn you into a, you know, octopus person or whatever it is, it means that you have legions of people who for political reasons, because this has been pushed on the political right, it's become being unvaccinated has been become like a tribal identifier of your pro-Republican, pro-Trump right-wing values. What's you that? have places Identity, like what's that, Van? Identity politics on the right, you say? No. Yeah. Oh <laughs> yes, I know. Shocking, isn't it? Imagine. So the identity politics of right-wing, middle-class, Republican voting grievance in the United States of America has meant that there are thousands of children 
who are in ICUs across Republican states. The states that voted for Trump are essentially a map of dying children, unvaccinated children from unvaccinated families who are, you know, hooked up to life support in ICU. There are hospitals that cannot take any admissions. God help you. There was a guy who had a shotgun wound who couldn't get a hospital bed for a week because of coronavirus patients in the United States. And children are dying. Children are dying. And this is and, this is the and, yeah, sorry. Well, no, that's all right. I'll let you finish. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. But, but, and, but, we're in the same den- like level of denial here. Just the only difference is the population of unvaccinated people. For Scott Morrison to seriously uh, claim that you know it's just more important that we get the shops back open is the most depraved and insulting comment I've ever heard from Australian Prime Minister in my lifetime. And I lived through John Howard. Like I can't I, think- I live through Tony Abbott. And they neither of them would have dared to tread on the territory of your children's health and lives are expendable to the economic pressure that governs us. It's just it's I, I'm, I'm done. I'm done, Ben. I am seriously done. I just <laughs> well, don't even know. I don't know what country this is. I, wanna, I don't know what planet we're living on. I, I just don't down, get it. Van, Van, I want to boil this down because you're absolutely right, you know, and, and it is it is an unfathomable thing to think that a Prime Minister of Australia would manipulate the figures to suggest that it would be all right because it's just like the flu and our kids get the flu all the time and, you know, we'd, there'd be some deaths but it'd be like the flu. Well, here the, this, is from, this is from the Royal Australian College of GPs, these stats, right? Deaths from the flu in 2020 were 36. Now, the COVID restrictions were in place for much of 2020 and that was a big drop because the year before it was 902. Now, the year before that, it was only 148. In 2016, it was only 273. Now, the best case scenario kind of planning here from in Morrison's plan has deaths from COVID and, remember, in our children at about 13 or 1,400 children dying in the space of a year. So more children will die of COVID than total number of people die from the flu, according to the Royal Australian College of GPs. And we should also probably take into account the fact that the COVID restrictions have made an impact on flu deaths, and that's a good thing. Like, that's actually a good thing. You know, over the course of a year and a half, we've saved maybe a 1,000 people's lives uh, who would have died from the flu, quite aside from COVID. This idea that somehow or another it's okay if children die in the same numbers as the total number of people who might die from the flu I think has to be one of the most skewed sort of monetarist thinkings I could possibly imagine. Like it's 
such but a But it's also the, version. oh, well, it's just, it, you know, like people die of the flu. Yes, in 1918, the last time there was a global pandemic, <laughs> tens of millions of people died of the flu. Tens of millions of people. Like this is this is not just a, oh, well, it happens kind of scenario. Yeah. It's fundamental effects on everybody who survives. It's like they're, they're so devoid of human empathy that they would think that you can just sort of you can you can just create like a spreadsheet tab for deaths and that's just well you've just got to live with it what does it do to the parents who bury their children how how are they supposed to continue as productive members of society when they're nursing the world's most unconscionable form of grief like what about communities that are absolutely wrecked by this i don't know if um People listening to the, I don't know if people listening to this podcast are as obsessed with the madness in America as I am, but there was some incredible footage the other day about um, a, they were having a meeting in Tennessee where doctors and scientists came out to a school because the school wanted to mandate the wearing of masks because Tennessee obviously is a red state. Coronavirus is ripping through communities there. And the. Yeah. The um the school board were like, we need a mask mandate. This is crazy. Yeah, and of course, all the right wing lunatics turned up, and who didn't, by the way, have children at the school. No. And there was this incredible footage of a group of them surrounding the car of a doctor and screaming at them as the doctor was trying to leave the event, banging on the car, and it was it was completely unhinged. That school is currently closed. They don't have a mask mandate at that school as a result of that meeting because four of the teachers have died like, and oh. 153 of the children have coronavirus. Like the, the, you'd have to check the figures. Sorry, I'm quite emotional. But no, the, okay. the school has closed because the school in this county that was having this decision has closed because of the level of sickness that has bedeviled it. And this is the kind of madness. It, it the Deaths don't happen in isolation. Illness doesn't happen in isolation. The long-term health impacts of COVID, it, uh, am I screaming into a void? Like every week no, I, I talk well, about heart damage, lung damage, impotency, you know, people affected for life. There was an article on the ABC website today about people who'd contracted um, coronavirus in the wake of the Ruby Princess, and their lives have been different ever since. Well, I mean, the Ruby Princess is is a good example, isn't it? Because fundamentally, that was a massive, massive failure um, that was punted backwards and forwards between Gladys and and ScoMo, um, and and I believe, Van, there's there's actually a, a an inquiry. There's been some findings about the Ruby Princess. Like we we can start to draw back the veil a bit about who was responsible for what was. 600 coronavirus cases uh, and 28 deaths among the passengers and crew. And it's, of course, the source of a major outbreak, particularly in Melbourne, where people left the the Ruby Princess and and came back to Victoria, disembarked in Sydney and came back to Melbourne. So the Commonwealth Inspector General of Biosecurity has been doing a review of the Ruby Princess disaster and they've found that the federal government of Scott Morrison were responsible for a total, total failure to deal with the Ruby Princess. Uh, the, The responsibility for processing the people who came off that boat was the Federal Agriculture Department and they didn't even interview the sick passengers, sick passengers, 
They didn't do it. And the Inspector General is like, this is, it's a scathing report. Uh, they it, they allowed the passengers to disembark. They didn't interview them. They didn't even process their symptoms or get reports on their symptoms. Like there's, it's 200 pages of just absolute incredulity that people knew this virus was happening. The intelligence was there. It had already started kicking off. They knew this boat had been in the vicinity of where these things were spreading and 600 positive cases walked off the boat without an interview. You know, yes. the, the, there are actually protocols that are already set down about how to process these things and they just weren't followed. Like there was no traveller with illness checklist. And these are the like these are the, didn't happen. And these didn't are the people who who want to do, you know, want to open up like they have in the UK. You know, to to look at another example like the situation in those red states of America. Um, you know, the UK has recorded a record day for deaths for 2021 recently. Uh, I believe it was yesterday. They've recorded, they've increased number of deaths every week since they've had Freedom Day. And now Gladys and Morrison want us as a people of Australia to ignore all of that international evidence, to ignore the findings of these inquiries into things like the Ruby Princess, to ignore their failures in quarantine, to ignore the fact that they've only really got into vaccination when Sydney's had an outbreak uh, and somehow or another trust that their, their reading of a particular model of what might happen uh, is the only possible outcome. Well, I mean, you look at these uh, Commonwealth Inspector General's uh, findings and, and, you know, it says it's perplexing the department was not more prepared after the Diamond Princess incident in Japan. And if that failure to think about what's going on around the world in a global pandemic is still so prevalent in the thinking of the leadership of the Liberal Party in New South Wales, Morrison and Gladys. How can we possibly trust them to open up the country? We can't. Then they didn't I, mean, even I want the country ins- open. I want to see you. <laughs> you know, like they, we're, we're yeah. here talking about this as people. Are there, who are are there two people who want the country open more than you and I? I think, quite frankly, from my indulgent, self centered worldview, I do not think there are. I don't think anybody has wanted a border to come down more in my Certainly in my experience. Oh my God. This is so hard. It's so, so hard. And it's not. We're not alone. We know there are people no. who are suffering in the worst possible way. Like, it's just so difficult. And yet, strangely enough, I still, I, I love you, but I don't want to endanger their health of children to see you again. And I like, feel exactly. That's not what our relationship is about. And I feel exactly the same way. I think the, I think the, the raw, politicking of Scott Morrison to try and use the discomfort, the anger, the grief, the separation that Australians are having as a means of achieving 
what, quite frankly, has been his view the whole time. If people remember the start of the pandemic. He when was he was very, going to the football. And he was dismissive of it and he didn't want to put in place economic supports and he didn't want to have lockdowns. As, as late as July, he was congratulating Gladys for not locking down. And, you know, when she should have, much earlier. Oh, she should have much put earlier. Out, you know, they were backgrounding journalists saying, oh, they were really angry that she didn't go to lockdown earlier. And because this was the story that came out last week, that the feds were like, oh, well, we told her to lock down earlier. And Gladys started backgrounding as well going, no, 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 that's not true. Like that's not a thing that actually happened. You know, it is absolutely appalling. Let's just put this in perspective. The Ruby Princess turns up. There are 600 positive cases on board and the federal government agency responsible for processing the ship didn't even inspect the medical logs. It's amazing. Look, I want to move on because, you know, there's some other some, some other big um, news. I also want to remind people about the On The Job podcast uh, where you can hear more about workplace issues, uh, what's going on at work, the whole uh, the whole world of work really with Francis Leach uh, and Sally Rugg on the jobpodcast.com.au. It is one of the great uh, podcasts that Australian Unions, a proud sponsor of this show, uh, is, is supporting. Uh, and, you know, it turns out uh, they've they've asked me to go on there in a in a few weeks' time, so uh, I'll I'll be on there in a few weeks. So uh, do listen out for that. I'm looking forward to that catching up with uh, ca- catching up with Francis and possibly Sally as well. Be be great. Um, but Van, you know, workplace issues are obviously a key key part of the pandemic. People are stood down. There's discussions about vaccines, discussions about compulsory vaccination. The union movement has said workers should be engaged in these discussions. Uh, you know, we should be encouraging people to be vaccinated. Uh, individual workplace mandates are not necessarily the way to go. Uh, and at the same time, we're seeing corporations make a massive power grab and trying to strip away job security at some very profitable corporations who've gained a lot from the pandemic in the in the form of Grain Corp and Toll. Oh, it's outrageous. It's absolutely outrageous what's going on. And it, like I said, this is about governing philosophy. More important to keep Harvey Norman open, more important to ensure that companies like Grain Corp just they have been experiencing record profits over the course of the pandemic. Grain Corp, of course, make the frying oil that's used by, you know, those struggling small businesses like KFC and McDonald's. Yeah. And the pan- like there's been huge demand on their on their products, obviously, over the course of the pandemic. And they were literally bragging uh, in an interview with the AFR about how great it was. They were just going to put on more casuals and use a casualised workforce. I, I, I've got to say my, my rage at the capitalist system, which has been a feature of my entire adult life, really has been quite distilled by my subscription to the AFR. I do not regret the money I spend on that particular um, <laughs> subscription because it, it's where capitalists speak honestly about what they believe. Oh, yeah, yeah it's it's just great. We're just going to keep pursuing a mass casualisation of our workforce in well, order to maximise our profit margins. And it's like, well, yeah, that's exactly what you're doing. Thanks, thanks for telling us the truth. Let's talk about some of the numbers here because I think they're pretty pretty staggering. 
So last year, Graincorp hired 3,000 casuals uh, and they anticipate that 70% of those workers will return this year. So they've kept them as casual. The UWU uh, is uh, the union that represents the workers at Graincorp. They're saying that workers should have a pathway to permanency. There should be secure jobs as part of the collective agreement and that there are workers who've been there for 12 years who don't, who aren't permanent. At the same time, the the underlying profit for GrainCorp was eighty to one hundred and five million last year, uh, and is jumping up to one hundred and twenty five to one hundred and forty million dollars. And that includes that's after they've made a seventy million dollar payout for an insurance uh, issue that they have. So. So you're talking about almost doubling their profit in a pandemic at the same time as wanting to strip away job security from the workers that they have. Like these are thousands of Australian families who don't know from day to day, week to week, month to month, whether they'll have work for a corporation that is – Rolling in cash and bragging about it, as you say. That's, I mean, what kind of government doesn't even address this issue? It's not even on the radar for someone like Morrison that this is what's going on. No. Well, why would it be? And this is the thing if you want to know why Scott Morrison hasn't been more generous um, paying people to stay home over the course of the pandemic, it's because of things like Grain Corp and the fact that. In that same interview in the AFR, they bragged about how many thousands of job applications they got for the jobs that they're putting on there. These are people who are deliberately, you know, prioritising a a casualisation of their workforce and people are so desperate for work that they'll, uh, they'll apply there anyway. And that's the, that's the, the structural evil of the moment in time that we're in. I the people it's... are desperate, desperate for work. We know that underemployment is through the roof in Australia. Well, I think like, it's interesting, Nobody has Van, ever seen anything like it. And, Van, I, Van, I think yeah. it's interesting at this point to, to, to mention that in this week's sitting of parliament, um, the nationals in Morrison's government pushed through an expansion of the temporary uh, migrant worker visa program to essentially uncap it so that essentially in agriculture now you can bring in as many um, uh, temporary migrant workers as you like who we know are more susceptible to exploitation, who are routinely and systemically sexually harassed, who are literally housed in dog boxes uh, and sometimes, you know, multiple people in a room. When I say multiple, I mean five to ten people in a room at the same time. And this is because you've had these big agribusinesses, of which Grain Corp is one, um, saying it's so hard to find workers, it's so hard to find workers, yet Grain Corp's received two thousand applications in the first three weeks uh, from uh, for people to work in Queensland and northern New South Wales. There, there is a real disconnect between the reality on the ground for working people and the way corporations and government are conspiring to keep wages low and job security non-existent. Uh, and that's happened this week. This week, 
They've done that and they celebrated it. David Little Proud did the media rounds, you know. At the same time, you've got Grain Corp. Workers at Grain Corp are going on strike, you know, well, they're, they're, they're voting to go on strike. We're seeing the same thing with Toll Van, the, the, the truck drivers at Toll. Toll, of course, big company. Lots of people ordering things to be delivered at home during the pandemic. Toll doing very well, thank you very much. Um, of course, they get a bit squeezed as well by the likes of Amazon and others, but still quite profitable. The workers there have already voted to go and take industrial action. They'll be doing that on Friday. Uh, during this week, we'll see Lynn Fox truck drivers as well. Their agreement is up. Lynn Fox, of course, delivers alcohol to supermarkets among other locations. And let me tell you, the, the alcohol business has been booming, unfortunately, during the pandemic in some ways. Uh, and yet they're doing the same thing. They're wanting to remove uh, job security, cut over time, reduce wages. There's just a total disconnect between who's doing well out of the pandemic and the frontline workers who make our food, make the inputs into our food, our beverages, all those things are somehow expected to take cuts it's outrageous. We need, you know, but it's good to see. It's good to see that the workers are standing together in union at the UWU and with the TWU. They're taking action. And we've seen those workers win time and again during the pandemic when they've said, we're oh, not going to put up with this. Yeah. These are companies that are making the Grain Corp hundreds of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, and that's and why should. Yeah, yeah, profit. And why should you be exploited? Like there is no profit with, sorry to get all 19th century on everybody, but there is no profit without you. Your labour power, your productivity is what generates that profit for the company and you should have a share in it. So absolute solidarity with everybody who's a UWU member who's going on strike at Grand Corp. You absolutely should. You deserve more than you're getting. This is absolutely appalling. It's unrestrained greed and anybody who facilitates it is morally sickening, frankly. And Van, I noticed today as well, like on on this issue of corporations using the pandemic as a power grab. Uh, Australian Unions has actually launched, I don't know if you're aware of this, um, uh, they've launched a campaign today um, to, to fight for more secure jobs, securejobs.australianunions.org.au. Um, I'm just getting this update through. And, you know, there are real stories there about workers in everything from aged care uh, to uh, electricians, to transport workers, uh, to manufacturing workers, you know, the sorts of jobs that for a 100-plus years in Australia we thought of as being permanent. You know, that was part of, the, part of the language in Australia. Oh, is that a permanent job or not? You know, and, and I appreciate people don't necessarily all want a job for life and, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is knowing day to day, week to week, month to month, that you've got a job, that you can go into work, that you're going to get your paycheck if you do your job, and that the business isn't going to turf you out. You know, if the business is doing well, you're doing well. You know, that there's a relationship there. 
And that's really what I think the union movement is talking about, is that, as you say, these corporations need workers in order to function. You know, this is not... This is not a random input. This is not a widget that they can just conjure up. And and it's sad to see the Morrison government trying to undermine the stability of the labour market by simply opening the doors. To And it also undermines, I should say, the Pacific Island um, temporary migration visas uh, that have helped many of our Pacific Island neighbours uh, increase their economic activity. These are these are troubling times, and of course, the best thing you can do, as always, Van, is join a union. Join, join a, a union. union. Join a union. It's it you know it's so good to see workers standing together to say no, we will not be exploited. To see Australian unions, the ACTU, every union around the country saying secure work is fundamental to the Australian way of life. It's fundamental to the recovery out of the pandemic. You know, nobody nobody that I've ever spoken to has said, oh, I really hope Grandcourt doubles their profits this year. But lots of people I've spoken to have said, I really hope my son, my daughter get a full-time permanent job. My dad, because that's one of the great casualties of the pandemic as well, is how many older Australian workers... Absolutely. Lost their work, you know, and we know people who are talking about their parents who'd been in the workforce their entire lives, being totally economically smashed by coronavirus. And those workers deserve workplaces that are respectful and non-exploitative and accommodating and gives Australian workers the opportunity to be productive. Like, anyway, anyway, solidarity to the workers at Toll as well and it is it's so important the stronger unions we have the more purchase ordinary people have on what the workplace looks like and let's be very clear like in the times in this country's history before years and years of liberal party union bashing when union membership was really really high and you know the older sort of legacy industries were really heavily unionized before the scourge of casualization you know, there were still profitable companies. There were still people who made enormous amounts of money. Like unionisation is at the heart of the industrial project because it makes corporations, you know, more productive because you have a happier workforce. This This is the fundamental rule. And you and I talk a lot about economies in Scandinavia and particularly in Germany. Like there are still extremely profitable corporations in Germany and yet they have really high levels of unionization. And here's an amazing, uh, you know, bit of information. In Germany they do tripartite economic planning with businesses and government and unions where everybody gets to talk about what they would like the economy to look like. Oh, how absolutely out there. And it's like I've spent some time in Germany. That's not a poor country. No. You know, there aren't former, like, car executives begging on the street. Like, they haven't been destroyed <laughs> by those policies. They've been totally enriched by them. Yes. Like, anyone, anyone who's ever had to pay, you know, for 
something Bosch or Mercedes or BMW or Audi or, you know, uh, Krupp's coffee something or other or, you know, anyone who's ever bought anything manufactured in Germany knows that it's incredibly good quality and you pay for it and the money is going to the workers as as well as to obviously company profits. Like it's a, it's actually kind of how we want things to be, isn't it? High high value, you know, long lasting. You know, you don't you don't throw away a German made anything really. I just find it so funny. It's like, oh well, you know, bloody unions. Oh, you know, destroying innovation. And what about the poor entrepreneurs? And like, so Mercedes Benz doesn't innovate oh that is yeah, very exactly. interesting what an interesting perspective bmw no innovation no no absolutely not oh well, my Van, god one of the ones that struck me as you'd be aware um and as i'm sure some of our listeners will be aware there's an election happening in canada and of course for much of the last 200 years um canada and australia have had very similar economic Structures, and when I say structures, you know, wheat and sheep and natural resource export, you know, very similar economic structures, and culturally, in many ways, similar. Obviously, some some big pockets of difference with a large French-speaking population in parts of Canada, but overall, economically, very similar structure uh, to Australia. The leader of the Conservative Party, and I've seen this video. Online, I, I checked to make sure it wasn't a deep fake, and sure enough, it wasn't. But the leader of the Conservative Party, Scott Morrison's opposite number in Canada, has done a video address where he talks about the importance of unions, the importance of workers having a seat at the table, and how his party will put workers on the boards of companies and require Canadian companies to have worker representation on their boards and that unions are an important part of how the Canadian economy gets going again. This was, I, I as I say, I had to double check it to make sure it wasn't a deep fake um, because fundamentally that's a huge shift. We're not seeing much sign of that from Scott Morrison, I have to say. No, no, not really. But it comes on the back of a lot of activity by workers joining unions, the pandemic, making it difficult for Canadian companies to get workers to accept lower paying conditions. So, you know, it can happen. You can get there. I mean, we had Menzies for a long number of years here, and you'd have to say as bad as Menzies was on so many things, he was certainly better than the current bunch of liberals when it comes you know, like to like abandoning workers. Australia to Japanese invasion during the Second World War. I mean, that that was kind of the clincher. Yeah, yeah, no, I get that. I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm in no way to admire of Menzies, Van. You Selling know pig iron to Japan at the time that they were invading China. Also, the pig iron bob, the pig iron bob uh, posters were up in my office in the union. I'm from too. Wollongong, Benny, as well, you know, and he'll always be pig iron bob to us. But I, I do have to say that if I if I was comparing 1950s Menzies to 2020s Morrison, it's it's remarkable how far the Liberal Party have fallen when it comes to a sense of fairness uh, 
you know, not to say that Menzies was great. He wasn't. He was awful. Uh, but you've got to you've got to wonder. Morrison is is an outlier now. You know, globally he's an outlier on so many issues. We know on climate he's an outlier. You know, we we know on the way he's treating the pandemic. He's an outlier. You know, when it comes to comparison, abandoning with, our allies in Afghanistan, an outlier on that as well as we've talked about, and and clearly, if the conservatives in Canada are to be believed increasingly an outlier on the treatment of workers and unions. Let's be fair, though. I mean, because this is the thing. When Australia was considered globally as, and I'll use the the gendered term here because this is what it was known as, yeah. a working man's paradise in the 1950s and 60s, you know, this, this country where anyone could get an opportunity, you know, subject to things like the White Australia policy, obviously, yeah. to gain a job and earn a decent living and have decent hours and job stability. And when we had really low employment, these were, of course, flow-on effects from the Curtin and Chifley governments of the 1940s that pursued full employment strategy who went there is no excuse for a government to abandon anybody to unemployment. If there's unemployment, we create jobs. We will build infrastructure that will make Australia more productive and more efficient. That was the economic philosophy and it's never been disproved. It has never, ever been disproved, that model. Um, Everybody knows that various people clasp economic tracts as holy text, like Tim Wilson and the completely unhinged capitalism and freedom by by Milton Friedman. Um, The one I clouch is, of course, the white paper on full employment that was the the Curtin-era document that meant that Australia had unemployment that never really went higher than 2%, which is frictional, you know, people changing jobs or dying or... um, just new into the workforce for like for 40 years well 30 years we had that system 30 years and Menzies didn't dismantle it you know this the arch conservative the icon of Australian conservatism Menzies part of the reason why he didn't was he couldn't because unions were so strong and Australians in unions had the political power to ensure that the economy actually created and extended opportunities for working people so we could have a conservative government and not be completely abandoned to economic misery and exploitation because that fundamental defence of the union movement was in place, no matter what the conservatives did. And it 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 positioned them to have to support a pro-worker agenda through sheer force of numbers. So if you are feeling like you're stuck at home, you're in lockdown, or you're feeling at risk because you're having to go to work uh, and you're not feeling particularly safe when there's a pandemic and you're wondering about how do you deal with this issue, you know, the conservative government, and there may not be a, a worker-friendly government for some time, you make a government worker-friendly by joining your union. You, you create the circumstances in which they must be friendly towards you, your workmates, your colleagues, your co-workers. And you're, you're right as a citizen to have children that do not unnecessarily get sacrificed to a virus. And you do that by joining your union. Go to australianunions.org.au slash wow. That's W-O-W for the week on Wednesday. And to hear more about workplace issues, check out On The Job the podcast of Australian Unions with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg on the jobpodcast.com.au. Uh, you can get that wherever wherever you got this podcast from. You can 
also get on the job uh, unless you've gone directly to our uh, to our website. You, wherever you get your podcasts, you'll be able to get that one as well. Van, we should. I think that's actually a pretty upbeat note because there's a lot there people can do to to make positive change. But talking about positivity, <laughs> there is some good news about electric vehicle charging and concrete. To talk, oh my god, talk I love this. this. This is so amazing. Okay, so one of the issues with electric vehicles is obviously you've got to charge them. So how do we charge them most efficiently and effectively? How can we make that happen? Well, a German company, oh, sorry, a large number of union membership means they couldn't possibly innovate. So what an incredible coincidence that they have come up with in poor, you know, heavily unionised Germany, um, this amazing technology where they're using a form of concrete um, that's uh, wired and using magnetic fields to charge electric vehicles while they're driving on the concrete. That's amazing. That's amazing. It's just so great. And they've worked out how to do it without copper because the price of copper has apparently gone through the roof at the moment during the pandemic. Uh, So they're using recycled ferrite and have worked out this charging system. It's just, it's incredible. And the... um, the first place, one of the first places that's going to try and build these and put these in is actually Indiana in the United States, which I have spent some time in hilariously, post industrial Indiana. Quite, quite the place, I've yep. got to say. Certain things about the Jackson family become very yeah, understandable right. when you see that where they grew up in Gary, Indiana. Um, but yeah, so Indiana is full of freeways, obviously, because it links, yeah. uh, you know, it doesn't matter. Let's not get into US geography, but they're going to put them in. Um, and it's so this just. Is, this is great news. I mean, some of the numbers here, like I'm just seeing um, achieve efficiency, transmission efficiency of up to 95% and built at the standard road building installation cost. I mean, that's incredible. It, I'm hearing here that. Um, uh, well, I'm reading here that uh, Sweden has electric rails in some of its highways that allow the largest vehicles to to charge a bit like a, a tram in reverse, I guess. Um, but, you know, I'm seeing here Volkswagen uh, and an Israeli firm. Obviously, uh, uh, Israel is a uh, one of those countries that has a extensive uh, startup um, culture in its corporate uh, world, they've rolled out a prototype seventy kilowatt hours of charging speed on a road between Brescia and Milan. Uh, this is amazing, and and Siemens is unfolding a scaffolding of cables and wires above a three mile stretch of road outside Frankfurt that would would allow cars to charge as though they were trams. Germanicus is excited by this, folks. This is Well, I mean, everybody incredible. knows, if listeners to this podcast will know that uh, sustainability solutions through transport is one of my many niche interests. And I just find this technology so exciting. So, the, so it's done by adding a coil, like a charging coil in the undercarriage of the car. So the the coil responds to the magnetic, magnetic field generated um, underneath the concrete and through the concrete as the car is driving. 
it's just, it's amazing. And it means things like last week we spoke about all the electric vehicle charging stations that they're putting through essentially a tourist route up the west coast of Western Australia, which will be able to guide traffic into tourist towns and create economic opportunities. These are really complementary systems because obviously, you know, the entire length of Western Australia, um, repaving that with this kind of that would concrete be technology. That would be difficult. We use these things complementarily and we end up with these amazing um, these amazing carbon savings and these incredible innovative opportunities to build a future which is based on clean energy. And, yeah, it's it's um, it's incredible. Like um, I'm, so, so ex- I'm so excited about <laughs> electric vehicle charging concrete freeways, but I genuinely am. Like it makes it gives me hope that this poor beleaguered planet isn't utterly, totally doomed. Well, you know, I don't think it is. I really don't think it is because I think the fact that, you know, casual workers at Grain Corp are standing up for their rights, the truck drivers at Toll are standing up for their rights. You know, I want to also stress that the TWU have been very clear on, on that toll industrial action, that won't impact medicine um, or vaccine delivery. They're, you know, they're not putting people at risk, which I think is an important point because there's some misinformation about that. You know, there is a lot of hope, I think. You know, you look at what people are doing in, in terms of making our, our way of life more sustainable and improving our way of life, improving the way we live. That's what it's about. It's not about you know, making our lives worse or miserable or, or or more backward in some way. It's about how do we improve the way we live our lives and make sure that there are lives to be lived in generations to come. I, I got a lot of hope. I got a lot of hope in this planet. I got a lot of hope in the people of, uh, of Australia and the world, Van. I think you do too, deep down. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I have a lot of faith in Australians. I do. Um, and that's what keeps me going when things get really bleak. You know, I see just ordinary people going, yeah, no, we're not doing this, and that does give me hope, I've got to say. It really does. I think that's a very good note to end the week on Wednesday for this week on a day which you'd be forgiven for feeling blue and bleak given some of the news. <laughs> given I'm trapped in New South Wales and there are hundreds of people in hospital and people dying alone in their homes. And, yeah, look, you know, guys, I do apologise for my slightly snarky tone, but it, it's it's a – every conversation I've had with people today, people are in much the same place. Like yeah. it's, it's hard. We are going through a hard thing. But yeah. our priority as, as, as a people is to keep our children alive and – if we're all if we're all doing that, um, we've got hope. We do have hope. Absolutely, absolutely. So, thank you so much for listening to the week on Wednesday. For tuning in to the weekend wrap every Sunday afternoon and evening. Uh, don't forget to check out uh, the other Australian Unions podcast, the official Australian Unions podcast on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. Remember, if you're not a member of your union, you can join at any time. You can go online, australianunions.org.au slash wow for the week on Wednesday. That just that just lets us know that, that people are joining from listening to the podcast. We don't get your details. It's no, There's no data issue there. Um, it really is just so that 
we get the warm, fuzzy feeling of knowing that people who listen to our podcast do take that step, you know, and congratulations to everybody who has joined after listening to the week on Wednesday. We know that many, many, many people have joined. Um, don't forget to check out, as I say, that new Secure Jobs campaign, securejobs.australianunions.org.au, um, because there's lots going on. You know, the pandemic is not the only news in this country. Um, we do have to keep our children safe. We do have to keep each other safe. Uh, and Van, please do stay safe in Sydney. Do do stay safe with your mum, and I hope your mum stays safe as well. I miss you very much. Domenicus Let's misses just you. hope the roof doesn't fall in. <laughs> I feel like that should be Morrison's next political slogan. <laughs> He's gonna. I miss you so much. And literally yesterday, when I was standing in the lounge room, the water pouring from the ceiling, you know, going, I just this is war zone level kind of stuff. You know, I missed you so much. But we do what we need to do because there are priorities for this community that are beyond what we're going through. And if we all stick to them the most important things will survive and that's what we've got to remember even when it gets dark. I'm sorry I'm dark, everyone. It's just been a very difficult 24 Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I love you, Vanny. I'm fine. I'm not crying. I'm not crying. It's all good. It's all right. It's all right. And our thoughts go out to everybody who is in a difficult situation at the moment because we, we, we get it. We're in it too. And, you know, that's what we're in together. That's what we've got to remember. You know, there's no quick fix to this. You know, don't be tempted. Don't be tempted by the by the quick fix, by the easy solution, by the answer that makes you feel better in the short term. You know, that's what we've seen happen in the UK. It's what we've seen happen in parts of the United States. And And the repercussion of that is people dying, you know, and I know you and I, Van, we're not prepared to accept that. And I know most Australians are not prepared to accept that. And we just have to hold hold to the values that make us who we are. Hold to those values and we will come through it. We will come through it. And if that means we've got to put more pressure on the Morrison government to provide more income support, then we've got to do that. If we've got to put more pressure on corporations to provide more job security, then we've got to do that. Um, but we've got, to, we've got to stay true to who we are as people and as a people. And that means we don't sacrifice our children. We don't sacrifice our most vulnerable people just so that we can play a bit more community sport or wander down to the local electronics store and browse. That We don't do that. That's not who we are. Mm-hmm. Look, on that note, that is the week on Wednesday for this week. Thank you so much. Please do keep listening. Please do share every episode you can. And remember to stay true and stay union. Love you, Vanny. I love you too. I miss you more and more every day. Bye. Look after the dog. I Bye. Do. Bye. Bye.